Hey, good morning, guys, and Happy New Year to you and your family. My name is Dan, and I get to serve as the Director of Communications here at the church. All right, first up, due to the provincial shutdown, our offices are closed. However, the market remains open and is in great need of donations. When you guys are out doing your shopping, you can head to the Market Facebook page to see what is most needed. Donations can be dropped off at the building Monday to Friday, 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. at our delivery door at the southwest corner of the building. That's that door right back there. Also, guys, please continue to pray for our guests and volunteers. Our city is in such great need of the gospel. We are currently in the process with Ben Tucker to bring him on as an elder here at the church. For those of you who missed the handout on December 20th, you can navigate to the news section of our website, just like this. Or, if you're feeling really smart, you can go directly to rbclondon.ca slash news. All of the information can be found there. That's all I have for you today, guys. Thank you, and God bless. Thank you. 
throne ruling this morning sovereign and with love we worship you lord we trust you who can stop the lord almighty who can stop the lord almighty who can stop the lord almighty who can stop the lord there is no one no one Stop the Lord Almighty. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Who can stop the Lord? Our God is the Lion, the Lion of Judah. Comfort for, amen. Such comfort for us this morning that the Lord is on his throne and ruling. 
Praise your name, Lord.
is our King, here is our love, here is our God who's come to bring us back to Him. As he is the one, He is Jesus. He is our King, He is our love, He is our God who's come to bring us back to Him. As he is the one, He is Jesus. He is our King, He is our love, He is our God who's come to bring us back to Him. He is the one, He is Jesus. He is our King, He is our love, and He is our God who's come to bring us back to Him. He is the one, He is Jesus. He is Jesus. He is
Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your presence, Father. Thank you for your Holy Spirit to dwell within us, Father. Be with us this morning as we hear from your word, Father. Might you change us, penetrate our hearts, shake the calluses from us, the dust from our souls, Father. Let your spirit move in a powerful way. We pray this in the precious name of our Lord, our Savior, the King of Kings, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Redemption Bible Chapel. I invite you to take God's word and turn with me to the book of Nahum. I'm going to begin this morning with a brief quiz. That will give you plenty of time to find the book of Nahum. If you find the minor prophets, just finger through them and you'll land on Nahum eventually. But uh, while you're turning there, I want to give you a brief quiz. It's actually a quiz I heard for the first time maybe two years ago. And I have uh, worked through this quiz on my own on several occasions. I have used this quiz in various contexts, most recently with some of the students at Heritage College and Seminary. And I, I want you to sit this quiz with me as, as we begin today. And, and basically, the quiz consists of two groups of questions. And so in this first group, we have seven questions. And um, I simply want you to answer yes or no. Do you believe God is good? and does good. Question number two. Do you believe God is the blessed and only sovereign? Question number three. Do you believe God possesses all authority in heaven and earth? Question number four. Do you believe God is faithful? Number five. Do you believe God is all wise? And that he knows what is best for us. Question number six. Do you believe God is a loving heavenly father? And the final question in the first group. Do you believe God works all things together for our good? Now I'm going to assume, and I think I'm right in assuming this, that most of us, many of us, the vast majority of us, almost all of us, would answer yes, 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 yes to all of those questions. Yes, I believe that. I believe God is good and does good. I believe God is the blessed and only sovereign. I believe God possesses all authority in heaven and on earth. We should believe these things. All of these truths are lifted straight out of Scripture. And I'm sure almost all of us would affirm these things gladly. And we would attest to the fact we believe them. Okay, that's the first part of the quiz. The second part of the quiz is this. Again, seven questions. Number one, do you ever lie awake at night worrying about someone or something? Question number two, do you ever feel envy, anger, or bitterness toward others? Number three, does discouragement and disappointment ever get the better of you? Number four, do you and your spouse or perhaps a sibling ever bicker? Number five, do you struggle with discontent? Six, do you grumble, murmur when things don't go your way? 
And the final question, do you ever lose your cool? Now, as we take stock and we answer those questions, um, I don't want to assume anything, but I'm going to hazard a guess that all of us uh, answer a lot of those questions in the affirmative. Yeah, there are plenty of nights when I lie awake worrying about this, that, or the next thing. Yeah, I do wrestle with feelings of envy, anger, bitterness. I do struggle with discouragement and disappointment and disillusionment and everything else. And so, yeah, yeah, I hear you. I wrestle with a lot of those things. So there it is. There's the quiz. Group of questions number one, group of questions number two. And so on the one hand, we've affirmed all of these things we believe. We affirm that we believe in the God of Scripture and the God who reveals himself in his word. Amen and amen. And yet at the same time, we have affirmed that we wrestle with all of these things. When we put the two parts of the quiz together, do you know what our only conclusion can be? It is this, that more often than we probably care to admit, the God of Scripture is merely the God of our imagination, but he is not the God of our reality. I'm going to repeat that. It's worth repeating that far too often, more than we care to admit, the God of Scripture, the God in whom we say we believe, really is nothing more than the God of our imagination. And he is not the God of our reality. He is not the God who is dictating how we live, how we feel, how we act, how we respond. And the older I get the more convinced I am that one of the great challenges and the great callings and the great aims of the Christian faith, the Christian walk, is this. It is to narrow the gap between the God of our imagination, the God we say we believe in, as revealed in Scripture, and the God of our reality. And so that's my ambition today. That's my aim today. And to help us do that, we're turning to the book of Nahum. That's given you plenty of time. I trust you found it at home. I want us to narrow in on chapter one. And just at the outset, I want to make it clear, this is a dreadful book. I mean, Nahum really is. Nahum is fire and brimstone and judgment and wrath. I mean, look at the opening of the book, chapter 1, verse 2. He declares, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. It doesn't get any better. That is the tone, the, the tone of the entire book. You might recall Jonah. Jonah prophesied against the city of Nineveh. The Ninevites repented, and God did not bring judgment upon Nineveh. This is a hundred years later when Nahum prophesies. He again directs his prophecy to the city of Nineveh. He he again warns that judgment is coming. There is no repentance. And God's wrath and judgment falls upon the city of Nineveh. In 612 BC, the Babylonians overrun and destroy the city. That's what's going on in this book. Again, it is, it is dreadful. 
Here we have put on full display for us the wrath of God, his righteous indignation. And yet in the midst of it all, there is a verse that stands out like a massive rock in the midst of the raging sea. It stands out like a flash of light, a beam of light in overwhelming darkness. And it's right here in chapter 1, and it is verse 7. And listen to it, listen carefully as I turn our attention to it now. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. And so we're going to use this verse today, and we're going to use this verse with this very simple aim. It is to narrow the gap between the God of our imagination and the God of our reality. We want the God of Scripture to be the God of our reality, the God who dictates how we live, how we think, how we feel, what we say, how we respond, and here he is. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Three observations, very simple observations. Here is observation number one, the opening of the verse. The Lord is good. He is goodness itself. Scripture compares him to life, light, food, water, rest, Home, health, peace, wealth, honor, wine, joy, pleasure. All that is in this life that we deem to be good. Scripture uses all of these things to point our minds to the Lord who is good, who is goodness in himself. He is good in all that he says. We call that his truthfulness. He is good in all that he does. We call that his faithfulness. He is good in his condemnation and judgment of sinners. We call that his righteousness. And he is good in his salvation of penitent sinners. And we call that his loving kindness. We see his goodness wherever we look. James declares that every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation nor shadow due to change. Every good and perfect gift comes from God who is good. We see his goodness in creation. At the end of the creation account, the creation narrative, the Lord God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Not only do we see his goodness in his work of creation, we see his goodness in his work of providence. He is good towards all people, and his grace is over all his works. And not only do we see his goodness in his work of creation and in his work of providence, 
but we see his goodness in his work of redemption. Paul tells Titus that when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. It's a reference to the incarnation of the Lord Jesus. He is the personification of goodness and loving kindness. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of works that we had done, but according to his mercy, according to his grace. We see his goodness in creation. We see it in providence. We see it in redemption everywhere we look. We find confirmation of this wonderful truth that the Lord is good. I'm speaking specifically to Christians. We need to remind ourselves of this daily. I mean, God the Father was good to us when he set his love upon us before the foundation of the world. He was good to us. When he chose us in Christ Jesus apart from any merit in us. God the Son was good to us. When he became a man, took to himself human flesh, body and soul, humbled himself, took the form of a servant. He was good to us when he paid the penalty for our sin upon Calvary's cross. He was good to us when he redeemed us and washed us in his blood. God the Spirit was good to us when he caused us to be born again. He was good to us when he enlightened our darkened minds. And he empowered our enslaved wills. And he turned us to behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. And God triune is good to us now. He is good to us now in that he preserves us, he guards us, he keeps us by his power through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last day. He is good to us now in that he promises that all things, good, bad, prosperity, adversity, all things work together for our good. The Lord is he is good. That is observation number one. Here's observation number two out of Nahum chapter one, verse seven. The Lord is a stronghold in the day of trouble. What is the day of trouble? You might be thinking to yourself, we might very well think to ourselves, well, a day of trouble, well, that's a day of suffering, a personal loss. Grief, perhaps, or pain, or anguish, something of that nature. It's true in a sense. These are troubles. We live in a fallen world. We live and we suffer under the consequences of the fall. That is true. But it's not what is primarily in view in this verse, in this statement. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. What is the day of trouble? In the context of the book, the day of trouble is God's judgment. The day of trouble is the wrath of God. Twice, or perhaps three times, I can't recall, at least twice in this book, the Lord declares, it's a startling statement, it is, a, it is an unsettling statement, and it's a downright terrifying statement. At least twice he declares this, Behold, I am against you. I can't think of any more terrifying, frightening words in all of Scripture than these. Behold, 
I am against you. It is what the Lord speaks to every sinner. It, 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 is, it is a clarion, clarion call to fallen men, fallen women who are dead in their trespasses and sins and rebels at heart against their creator, God himself. Oh, you must hear this. Behold, says the Lord God Almighty, I am against you. And we know because scripture testifies to it so clearly that there is a day of judgment coming. There is a day of reckoning coming. There is a day of the outpouring of God's wrath coming. And Paul tells us in Romans chapter 2, I think it's verse 5, verse 6, he warns, you are storing up for yourself wrath. Wrath which will be revealed on the day of wrath and righteous indignation when God's wrath is outpoured upon sinners. You are storing up for yourself wrath. It's the idea of gradual accumulation. It's the idea of that dam with the water gathering behind it. And there's rainfall day after day after day. And the rain gathers in the river basins and it exits into this lake behind the dam. And the waters just gradually rise, rise, rise. And eventually the dam cannot withhold the force of the water anymore. And it breaks and the water surges forth. That's what Paul is saying. You are storing up for yourself wrath. The Lord himself declaring, behold, I am against you. That is the day of trouble. And yet, what do we read here in Nahum chapter 1, verse 7? The Lord is good. The Lord is a stronghold in the day of trouble. And so while we run, we flee from the wrath of God. We flee to the love of God. The love of God as poured out and made abundantly clear and evident in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we approach this God through his own appointed means, the Lord Jesus Christ, we find indeed that he is a stronghold. We sing this, many of us have been singing this for years, rock of ages, rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Hide myself from what? Evil. What is the evil? It is the evil of my sin and the consequent judgment that I deserve. And yet there is a stronghold. There is a rock. There is a place where we can run, a place where we can hide, a place where we can find safety, a place where we can find refuge. And it is when we run to this God himself, but we do so through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, that's the second observation. And I pray we take it to heart. The Lord is a stronghold in the day of trouble. And now here is observation number three. The last phrase in our verse. The Lord knows those who take refuge in him. Oh, that term refuge is very suggestive. It makes me think of the boat moored in the bay as the storm churns the raging sea. The soldier 
crouched in the trench as the enemy's projectiles scream overhead, the sheep enclosed in the pen as the predator prowls in the night, the village gathered in the tower as the marauder pillages the countryside, the family huddled in the shelter as the tornado wreaks havoc above, or the child embraced in the father's arms as a bad dream slowly drifts away. The Lord knows those who take refuge in him. The Lord knows those who come to him, who seek him and find refuge in him. He who is a stronghold approaching him through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And here are precious words indeed. The Lord knows them. He knows those who take refuge in him. Well, doesn't the Lord know everybody? Yes, in a sense, he's omniscient, but that's not the sense intended here. This is an intimate knowledge. This is a knowledge unique to his people. It is unique to, reserved for, those who find refuge in him as their stronghold. Paul writes to the Galatians, you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God. He knows his own. He knows his people. He has taken possession of us. He has taken possession of us by election. He has taken possession of us by redemption. He has taken possession of us by regeneration. He has taken possession of us by adoption. He has taken us and claimed us as his own, and he knows us. Therefore, he is intimately acquainted with our persons, our conditions, our trials, our sufferings, our problems. He is intimately acquainted with our past, our present, our future. He knows all about us, everything from our waking moment to our lying down at night 24-7. He knows everything about us and he is with us in it all. Oh, the Lord is good. The Lord is a stronghold in the day of trouble. And the Lord knows those who take refuge in him. Three very simple observations as we find them there in Nahum chapter 1 verse 7. Now, what is our goal here? What is our objective? It is to take this, these truths. It is to make certain that this God of Scripture in whom we say we believe, we trust, we affirm, yes, this is our God, this is what we believe. I believe the Lord is good. I believe the Lord is a stronghold in the day of trouble. I believe the Lord knows those who take refuge in him. I believe it, I believe it, I believe it. That's fine. But we want to make sure that what we say we believe concerning the God of Scripture does not merely make him the God of our imagination 
but makes him the God of our daily reality. We want to close this gap, narrow this gap that exists far too often in our experience between what we say we believe about God, but how we actually live and what we actually experience. And so let me try to close this gap between these two. Again, the God of our imagination and the God of our reality. And affirm to you that when this verse and this God really comes home and we really internalize these truths, it will be evident in at least four ways. Here's the first. A good God, this good God, when he is the God of our reality, oh, he will strengthen our faith. Let me ask you this morning, what do you do? I mean, how do you cope in those moments when it feels as though the earth is about to give way? How do you cope? How do you endure? What do you do when life makes you want to curl up in a fetal position and hide in your room? Oh, my friend, the God of Scripture must be more than merely the God of your imagination. He must be the God of your reality. And when this good God is the God of our reality, he will strengthen our faith. And when you think this time of year, perhaps this has been someone's experience who's listening to this, you think of that dad who uh, decides it's time for little Tommy, maybe he's three years old, four years old, to learn how to skate. And so he takes him out to the rink, and there he's got Tommy with his, you know, CCM or Cooper helmet on, covering his eyes. He's got the elbow pads and the knee pads, and he laces up his skates and takes him out, carries him out there onto the ice. And he's holding him up under his arms, right? And Tommy's basically just touching his skates there on the ice and gliding over the surface as his dad does all the work and holding him up. And there's Tommy just having the time of his life, trusting his father, not a care in the world. Why does that child trust his father? You know, he trusts his father because of his father's ability to skate. It doesn't necessarily have to be Wayne Gretzky on skates, but he knows how to skate. And uh, that, sure, instills some confidence in his son. And not only that, his father is pretty strong and he can hold him up and he can support him. That's good too. But the number one reason why that little boy trusts his father is this. He's convinced that he's good. You see, power and wisdom alone, power and wisdom alone will not stir faith in us. God is all-powerful. We affirm that. We believe it. It's true. It's wonderful. God is all wise. Scripture testifies to it. We confess it. But wisdom and power alone will not stir faith in us. You see, it is omnipotence and it is omniscience coupled with goodness that stirs faith in the hearts and the lives of God's people. Oh, God is good. He is good when we walk in the sunlight, the breeze at our back without a care in the world. And God is good when we crawl through dark days of terrible loss, unspeakable grief, and horrible pain.
And when the God of Scripture, the God who is good, has stronghold in the day of trouble, who knows those who take refuge in him, when this God is the God of our reality, oh, it will strengthen our faith. Here's a second result. When the God of Scripture is truly the God of our reality, he will provoke repentance. Have you become comfortable with your sin? Are you secretly indulging sin? Have you become hardened in your anger, your envy, your bitterness? Only the sight of a good God will soften your heart. Only a glimpse of the glory of God's goodness will bring you to repentance. Ahab never repented. Saul never repented. And Judas never repented. Why? Because they knew nothing of the goodness of God. In Les Mis, that famous musical, the protagonist, I suppose he's the protagonist, right? Jean Valjean. After 20 years or so in, in prison, he emerges from jail as a hardened, embittered man. And as he is journeying soon after his release, he spends the, the night, I think it's in the home of a, of a priest. And during the night, he ransacks the house steals, I think it's silver candlesticks or something, and physically assaults the priest as he, as he exits the home and he makes a break for it. The police soon catch up with him, arrest him, bring him back to the priest's home. And as the priest sees Jean Valjean come back, accompanied by the policeman, he emerges from the home and he says to the police officer, oh, there's been a misunderstanding. I gave him these candlesticks. They were my gift to him. And at that moment, as Jean Valjean is confronted with compassion, as he is confronted with goodness, his heart melts. And it has a transforming effect on his life. And it leads to change. It leads to repentance. If our only understanding of God is his power, is his wisdom, is his sovereignty, these things will never bring us to repentance. These things are true. But God is good. This is what scripture affirms to us. He is good as revealed in his creation. He is good as revealed in providence. He is good as wonderfully revealed in his plan of salvation. And when we understand his goodness toward us, and when we perceive that God is good in his being and does good, and every perfect and good gift comes from above, Oh, that's when we'll deal seriously with our sin. That's when we'll understand truly what our sin is, to sin against goodness. As a child of God, to understand who we are in Christ Jesus, to hear God say to us in the language of Isaiah 43, I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. I will be with you. Oh, to understand and appreciate and take to heart the goodness of God. 
Oh, when that happens, when a good God becomes the God of our reality, oh, that will break us for our sin. We will see our sin for what it really is. We will see our sin as it truly is, as if we were spitting in the very face of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is then and it is only then that we will forsake our sin, that we will repent of our sin as this good God becomes the God of our reality. Here's the third consequence, the third result. When this God, this good God, who is a stronghold in the day of trouble, who knows those who take refuge in him, when he becomes the God of our reality, it will stir obedience. It will cause us to obey because you see, as we grow in our appreciation of his goodness, we therefore grow in our love for him. And as we grow in our increase in our love for him, our desire will be to obey him. You think back on the garden, you think back on the garden of Eden, which means the light. And you think of the outpouring of God's goodness on Adam and Eve. There God fashioned Adam in his own image, in his own likeness, set him over the whole creation, fashioned and made and created this garden for him, a beautiful place, a delightful place, a sufficient place, able to meet his every need, provided Eve for him. There is Adam, the recipient of goodness upon goodness upon goodness. And Satan enters the, enters the scene. And Satan comes tempting Adam and Eve. And what is the goal of Satan's temptation? It is simply this. It is to make Adam and Eve doubt Question the goodness of God. We need to understand this is at the root of every sin. It is at the root of every temptation. Every temptation to sin is simply this. Is God really good? And is God good enough for me? And every sin we commit, we are exalting something else in life in this world as good above God, who is goodness itself. Oh, if we want to obey, if we want to be obedient children, if we want to be obedient servants, if we really want to take God's word to heart and really want to put into practice all that our God requires of us, oh, we must grow in love for him. And if we want to grow in love for him, we must grow and increase in our appreciation of his goodness. And this good God must become the God of our reality. And here's the fourth and final result. When a good God becomes the God of our reality, it will cultivate contentment. And so let me ask you, do you struggle with discontent? Do you tend to be edgy, annoyed, short-tempered, impatient? Let me add another question. Are you an anxious mess? Oh, the God of Scripture must be more than the God of our imagination. He must be the God of our reality. This God who is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble,
who knows those who take refuge in him. I mean, I think of the present circumstances in which we now find ourselves again, a lockdown. And I find myself wanting to murmur and grumble and vent. I find discontentment so quickly and so easily rearing its ugly head. My friend, we need to understand this. Discontent comes from a very definite fountain, and it is this. Discontent does not arise from our circumstances. Discontent does not arise from what is going on around us or what is happening to us. Discontent arises from within. It is a condition of the heart. We struggle with discontent, and therefore we tend to grumble and murmur because we refuse to submit to and delight in our Heavenly Father's wise disposal in every circumstance in life. Or to put it in other words, we struggle with discontent because we fail to take to heart this God who is good. Or to frame it, as we've been doing so this entire sermon this morning, to frame it in this larger category. We struggle with discontent because far too often the God of Scripture is merely the God of our imagination. And he is not the God of our reality. Oh, when he is the God of our reality, it will strengthen our faith. It will provoke repentance. It will stir obedience. And it will cultivate contentment because the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who take refuge in him. Our Heavenly Father, we do worship you today, and we do ascribe to you all glory, honor, and praise. You are good, and you do good. May we take it to heart. By your Spirit, may you help us to understand in far greater depth who you are. And by your Spirit, may you impress it deeply within us that daily you might be our delight and that you and you alone might shape our dreams, shape our expectations, our desires, our feelings, our aspirations, that indeed all of life might be governed by you. Help us to take to heart this simple verse from your word that we have sought to wrestle with this day. And may we find great rest and great comfort and great joy in this truth that you know your people. You know those who take refuge in you. You are intimately acquainted with every area of our lives. And may we find great comfort in this great solace. And we pray it for your glory. We ask it for our good. And we do so in the matchless name of Christ. Amen. It's safe to say this season for a lot of us has been so stressful, filled with anxiety, fatigue, maybe in levels that you've just never even experienced before. What we would like to do this morning is strengthen you, strengthen you with the Word of God. And so it's a song we've been singing for a number of years called Always, and we wanted to connect it with Psalm 3. So essentially we're going to sing, we're going to lead you in 
reading, singing of Psalm 3. And we trust and pray that you would continue to worship the Lord. Meet with him. Receive this as the word of the Lord for your hearts to provide you rest, confidence, and strength this morning. Amen. My foes are many. They rise against me. But I will hold my ground I will not fear the war I will not fear the storm My help is on the way My help is on the way Oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me Many are saying, oh my soul there is no salvation for him and God but you O Lord are your shield about me my glory and the lifter of my head I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around.
of your grace and mercy we became your family what a great joy to be part of your salvation plan thank you lord amen